Hello and welcome to episode 44 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture and politics. I'm Peter Lim. And I'm Peter Alagi. And Peter Alagi is in that well-known sleepy hollow, Peter Maritzburg in South Africa, and he introduces our guest for September. Our guest is Radigopal Nsimane, who's a lecturer at the University of KwaZulu-Natal School of Religion and Theology here in Peter Maritzburg. He is also a pastor in the Lutheran Church of South Africa and the deputy director of the Sinomlando Center for Oral History and Memory Work in Africa, as well as a board member of the Alan Payton Center and Struggle Archives. His research focuses on the history of Christianity in Southern Africa, and he's completing a doctoral dissertation entitled Amantla Asenyangeni Aweka Mutini, a critical history of the Lutheran medical missions in Southern Africa with special emphasis on four mission hospitals, 1930s to 1978. He's also the uh, co-author with Philippe Denis and Thomas Cannell of a forthcoming book, uh, going to be out any day, entitled Indians versus Russians, an oral history of political conflict in KwaZulu-Natal, published by Cluster Publications. Uh, forthcoming, and then he's also the co-editor with Philippe Denis again of Oral History in a Wounded Country, published by the University of KwaZulu-Natal Press, 2008. And I'd like to point out also that one of his chapters is available as a free download on the HSRC Press website, and we'll put a link to it uh, on the podcast website. It's in an edited volume entitled Baba, Men and Fatherhood in Southern Africa. So it's a great pleasure to welcome Radikobon Simane to the program. Okay, welcome to the show, Radikobon. Thank you very much. So, how did you become interested in history and maybe oral history in particular? I am an ordained minister in the Lutheran Church in Southern Africa. I went to the seminary in uh, 1984 after completing matric in Pochiftrum. I came to KwaZulu-Natal for seminary training. And uh, one of the interesting uh, subjects for me at seminary was uh, history of Christianity. Of course, I was also uh, made interested in history when I was at matric. But... Uh, the, 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 the teacher was not that good. The teachers were not very good in, in metric. For instance, we were taught by one teacher who only went up to two uh, chapters in, in Standard 9 of the whole uh, history book. We did not go beyond because uh, he was free to do what he liked. And I think what he liked was not teaching <laughs> very much. So when I got to the seminary, I liked uh, history of Christianity or church history as it was called then. And I thought that I would want to study history of Christianity further. I enrolled with the University of South Africa in 2003 and I was given an opportunity in 2005 to do um, graduate and postgraduate studies at this University of KwaZulu Natal in 2000 and in uh, uh, 2005, no, two, 1995, yes, 1995. And I finished uh, masters in uh, 1998, 
went to be a, a principal of a seminary, a Lutheran seminary where I studied. And uh, I came back in 2003, end of 2003, to this university to work as a researcher for Sinomolando Research Center and uh, attempt to finish my PhD in history of Christianity. And uh, Philippe Denis, who is the professor of history of Christianity, came from Belgium to teach Dominicans here in South Africa. He's a Dominican brother. And he realized that his job was made difficult by the fact that there were no sources written by blacks. So he, he taught himself some basics in oral history. And uh, when I came in 2003, after I studied oral uh, uh, history with him and did oral history, he employed me. So the fact that there was an opportunity to write history of black people, writing it uh, by black people interested me. That, that's how I got into oral history. Okay. Yeah. And uh, did oral history um, function as a, a new type of approach, a new type of source in the history of Christianity? Because uh, I think of the school of theology generally as, as a fairly conservative place, methodologically speaking. It is, but uh, you know, Philip Denise was a trained uh, secular historian or profane historian, as they are called in Germany. <laughs> so he, it was not difficult for him to move into the area of oral history in search of uh, other sources. What what I liked about oral history was the fact that uh, you allowed other voices, you allowed other biases on the table while written sources, which were mainly written from a European or Eurocentric uh, perspective, did not allow that bias to come into, into play. So I like oral history because it acknowledges that other voices have been muted and uh, it gives space to those, to those voices that have been left out. And I assume that a lot of these voices that have been left out come out in your doctoral research oh, on, yes. on medical missions in South Africa. And there's, there's a rich literature on colonialism and healthcare in Southern Africa. I think of uh, you know, uh, Diana Wiley and Julie Pyle, uh, Megan Vaughan on Malawi, and even outside of South Africa, Nancy Hunt mm -hmm. uh, on the Congo, and, and so many other uh, great historians. How, how does your work uh, differ or fit into that literature? What's about? The literature that you have mentioned uses mainly uh, um, archived sources. Uh, but I concentrate mainly on oral sources because my research is on power and power relations. And I wanted to find out uh, from the doctors, the nurses, and uh, the other uh, officials who worked in the hospitals, how they uh, related to their patients, how they interacted with the cultural dynamics in the area where they worked, uh, not only using archived sources, because that is the traditional way of, uh, of uh, using archives. Uh, Julie Powell herself will tell you that uh, she is only on on archives and, and uh, she gets the dust from, from the archives. She, she does not do much of oral history. Although the subjects that we are working on are related because they are on the history of, uh, of uh, medicine.
both biomedicine, Western biomedicine, and traditional medicine, and how they interacted. Interesting. And what are you finding out? How are they interacting? Because it seems like when, when the field began, there were sort of two opposites, right? There was the, the biomedicine on the one hand, and there was African indigenous healing uh, practices on the other. Um, and it seems like more recently you're seeing a dialogue and a, and a kind of a hybrid form emerging from that, or a synthesis. What, what are you discovering? Uh, my, my discovery is that um, I'm looking at the establishment of uh, medical, of um, mission hospitals in the 1930s. And I'm studying them until they were nationalized by the government in the 1970s. Now, that area is the area that was dealt with by missionaries who, by virtue of being Christians, by virtue of having an agenda of uh, subjugating indigenous cultures, they only promoted biomedicine. Sure. Without critically looking at uh, the, the fact that black people have been uh, managing their health for centuries without the intervention of uh, white people. So my point is in the, in the thesis, these rigid uh, missionary thoughts on uh, the black people who need external intervention for survival are wrong. I say they were, the black people were capable of looking after themselves, just like other people elsewhere. They did not necessarily need an intervention of, of biomedicine. I'm not saying that there is no value in biomedicine, because there were the diseases that, uh, black, that black people could not treat. I looked recently, I'm not sure where I read, uh, today or yesterday, where someone says the white people were treating diseases and the black people were treating people. So you can use both. They, I, I, I'm, in, my, in my dissertation I'm saying these two health systems can complement each other rather than being one against the other. The approaches also, which come from within world views, need to, <coughs> need to be acknowledged because white people uh, or biomedicine cannot treat other things that trouble social ills uh, that black people believe may be sources of illness. The white people cannot treat because they just want to see these are the symptoms, these are the manifestation of this disease, and this is the approach. Witchcraft being a particular... Case in yes, point. Yes, exactly. And, and they did not believe that sure. uh, witchcraft can uh, overwhelm someone to uh, the effect that they, it destroys the body or it immobilizes the body. While the traditional African health uh, systems acknowledges the fact that someone may be so jealous, so much jealous of you that they can uh, manipulate mm -hmm. uh, things. Uh, either uh, animals or the air or the water or whatever they manipulate to cause you harm. So the, this, this spiritual dimension uh, in, in illness and in healing, do you think your, your reading of it was, was influenced by your religious training and by your religious practice? And 
I, I think I insisted on looking at that section influenced by my uh, connection with Pan-Africanism. Pan-Africanism for me acknowledges the value of the black people. So I was interested in what the black people are bringing uh, in their relationship with Christianity. Is there something that they are bringing? Because as, as a pastor and as a, as, a, as a theologian, the literature that I read was to show that there is nothing that black people could bring. Uh, what the white people brought was civilization, was everything good. Uh, the gospel brought civilization to help the black people, who uh, they are, I think, portrayed as unable to help themselves. themselves. So my interest was, is that really true that they were not able to, to help themselves? Were they, did they lack agency? And you find out that no, they they have been able to find their own food before white people came to to this land they, to heal their own diseases, to find ways of hunting, to find ways of uh, uh, understanding their surroundings without uh, external intervention. So that that is why I moved to the area of uh, African uh, traditional health system. Are they valid? Oh yes, they are. They were. And they still are. That is why today you find people moving uh, forward, black people moving forward. On the one hand, they uh, trust and use uh, biomedicine. On the other hand, they trust and use African traditional medicine. Because what matters is what can help me in my position of distress. Now you cannot tell me that if, I, if something can heal me, I should not use it. Well, why not? I mean, I'm responsible for my life and my health and, and my children. And uh, you, you are prescribing something that is not helpful to me. I will find something that helps me. Now, <clears throat> building on this point, uh, Radigobo, you are a practitioner of uh, overall history within this wonderful organization known as Sinomlando, the Center for Oral History and Memory Work in Africa. It's a research and community development center founded by Philippe Denis, who you mentioned earlier in the mid-1990s. And one of the things that you do that is so amazing is the work with uh, bereavement and grief um, connected to HIV-AIDS in KwaZulu-Natal. And there's uh, a program called the Memory Box Program, which I think the original idea may, or inspiration came from East Africa, mm -hmm. uh, perhaps Tanzania uh, or Uganda. Yes. And you've been very, very deeply involved in the Memory Box program. And it's a, it's a very unique program in many ways. How does it work? Yeah. Um, Philippe Denis, uh, the founder of, of the research center, uh, as, an oral, as an oral historian, as a teacher, professor of, of history of Christianity, uh, and as a monk, as a brother, uh, was invited to visit abandoned children who were kept in the hospital in Edendale. I don't know which one of his friends uh, invited him, but he went there to uh, play with the children because hospitals are not trained to look after healthy children. 
they are trained to deal with sick people and as soon as the sick people become healthy the hospital becomes immobilized they, they run out of ideas but they were keeping these abandoned children uh, in the 1990s and Philip and friends were visiting the children to, to play with them uh, because the nurses can't, can't they are not trained to, to do that and uh, they decided, Philip and his friends, to uh, find homes for the children. And Philip adopted some of the children from those because the hospital could no longer keep keep them. They were adopted, given to uh, for adoption to different people that Philip knew. But these children started to ask Philip, "Hey, you are white, and we are black." Uh, how is that possible? And Philippe started to inquire and find what memories they have of their parents. Because uh, from readings to, to, to introduce himself to memory work studies, he found ways to uh, help children to think and remember. And they found out that they, uh, they don't have, Philip found out that they've got very, very minimum, minimal memories of their parents. And he realized that for them to be able to uh, live a normal, fairly normal life, they need to have some memories themselves of their parents. And uh, that is how memory work started. Because within memory, with memory work, we are convinced that you can remember things that keep you alive. If we can manage to stimulate you or trigger memories that you can treasure, you are able to have what we call resilience. To such an extent, because in, within African uh, communities, you, there are people who have got malicious intentions. When they don't like you, they can remind you of your ancestry, of your bad upbringing. They can tell you that your parents were bad, your father was a drunkard, your mother was this prostitute, and you will end up like them. And this can have very negative uh, <coughs> influence on the child. So with Sinom Lando and, and with Philippe's studies, we, we came out to say, let us look for positive memories that this child can have to say your father uh, contributed in building the school and when the child look at this school and say yeah I don't know my father or, or I don't I hear that my father died of HIV and AIDS but I'm a descendant of such a great person or my father was a soccer player he started to he's a founder member of this team and there are photographs that show now that is a positive uh, memory that can keep you alive, that can uh, um, make you resilient to want to live for something, to want to do good things like your father. Now, uh, Philippe and Nokaya, my two colleagues, did a pilot study in Durban in an organization called Sinociso and tried out the memory box method, where they encouraged caregivers or parents of uh, children who are ill or, or parents who are ill themselves to live a story. With memory work we 
keep a box we call it memory box but it's a, it's a metaphor it can it does not necessarily have to be a physical box but the idea is to keep those items of a deceased parent that the child can look at and uh, remember the parents with good memories we recorded the story as told by the parent if they are still alive or someone who knew the parents that we keep in the box along with earrings watch certificates ids photographs uh, item of clothing like a scarf a head or a jersey that you keep you keep there and the, child, the idea is that the child can keep going back to this and, and see and also look at the story to know who they are because what is important with in memory work is that the child must be resilient and we say the child must have an identity the child must have people uh, or a, a resource of support and the child must have abilities so with uh, identity the child must be able to say i am i am and when they are able to say i am then they don't have a problem to stand up and say i am so and so i am Kosi johnson for instance mm -hmm. i know i don't live with my parents this is my guardian but this is who i am i've got an identity and that is a sign of resilience if someone is able to know who they are they can stand up in a crowd the children must recognize the fact that they have abilities the abilities where they can say, I can. I may not be able to do things, but I can do A, B, C, D. I can draw, I can draw a family tree. I can draw what we call a river of life to show that this is how my life came and, and, and. And finally, they should say, I have. When they say I have, it means they've got important people in their lives. Previously in Sinomlando, we just we used to say, I have will only go for relatives, but not only relatives are helpful to a child who is orphaned. Uh, they can have ministers of religion, they can mm -hmm. have the police, they can have their teachers, they can have uh, good neighbors. So they should be able to say, I know that my parents are sick and they will die. But I've got that aunt, or I've got that pastor, I've got the police. Whenever there is a need, I'm able to go so that they are able to recognize sources of help. And that way they are resilient. They can they can say they can live for tomorrow. But if you don't have, if you can't, and if you don't know who you are, uh, you, uh, have, you have trouble. Well, this is incredibly powerful stuff. And reading one of your essays, a quote jumped out to me, where you said that uh, quote oral history is a human encounter that can have a profound effect on people's lives. And listening to you describe the memory box really brings this quote uh, uh, to life for me and I also wondered then you as a as a participant in the memory box program how has this changed your life as a scholar as a person yeah I fortunately have uh, both my parents uh, alive and I've got sisters I've got brothers cousins but I have seen people who do not have who do not have the support uh, system that I've got and I have seen how when they belong to organizations what we call support uh, support organization support groups because when HIV and AIDS grew uh, to such an extent that the number of orphans 
increased. Their part, <coughs> excuse me, the relatives could not cope with the ability to look after the children. So there, there are organizations, organizations that were started, community-based organizations, faith-based organizations, which did not have uh, material resources necessarily, but the human resources, the desire that that is mainly in women. Unfortunately, most of the uh, people giving support support to orphans and vulnerable children are women. These these women go out to help the children, to take them in, to find uh, grants for them, to uh, find shelter for them, to protect them from uh, situations of vulnerability where their uncles are, are getting drunk, where there is no opportunity for the children to go to school, to find uh, an opportunity to help the children put them on the right path. Now, this only comes from people who, uh, the women who may not have husbands themselves. They may be looking after 10 other grandchildren on their own or using the, the, the pension, old age pension that they get. Now you look at yourself with your education and say, how can I help? And you can only think of um, multinationals who, like USAID, like uh, European uh, Union Fund, PEPFAR, uh, Kellogg, Ford Foundation, but you don't go beyond to human touch. You, are, you only try ways to fund, to get a funding. But they cannot necessarily read these women. They don't know where to find, to find money. But they are doing the best. That human connection to the child. Uh, sharing the food with the child. So that, uh, to me, was very important to realize that where we do not see resources, it does not mean they are. In fact, what we do from uh, uh, our sophisticated uh, NGOs, non-governmental organizations, is we adopt these small organizations and try to help. But in our attempt to help them, uh, we change them. We give them a new identity. We want them to report on every cent that they spend. We want them to write reports, uh, sophisticated reports. We want them to, to count. We, 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 we call it monitoring and evaluation. And uh, thereafter, we don't give them funding anymore. But we disturbed the peace that they had, and, and uh, we wanted to enhance their health, but instead, uh, we, have, we highlight in our partnership with them the obligations that we've got. Uh, with the partners, and we disturb the relationship because they did not have, find this this help. They just they, to find this assistant. They all they wanted to do is to say, "I've got time to go and see if the children slept well. I've got some extra food. I want to see if the children go to school. I want to see if they have made uh, they have done their homework." So that is what changed me. That that uh, brought me. That cements me in, in uh, memory work, in uh, uh, memory box methodology. When I hear uh, about memory work, I'm often uh, 
thinking, how is it different from oral history? Because you do both. You do oral history, but you also do memory work. Can you explain what the, what the difference is? Oral history is uh, uh, studying the past. It's a, it's, a, it's a method used by historians to study the past. They are inter oral historians are interested in the past. But memory workers are interested in how, how do people remember? How does uh, their remembering help them? How does their forgetting help them? You know, both. It's not only remembering things, but it's also not remembering. And they choose uh, to remember. Because memory work is, how do they remember stuff? If they remember, how do they remember? And uh, oral, oral historians is interested in, in memory work, but memory work is not necessarily oral historians because oral historians uh, specifically want to create sources, want to interview and uh, keep transcripts or make transcripts for future research, for other, other researchers. In memory work, you seldom keep... Uh, if there is an interview encounter, you seldom keep uh, the records because it is more to help the person who has been traumatized, the person who has who has been marginalized for whatever reasons. In South Africa, you find that uh, black people were in, in apartheid and colonial times were uh, treated badly, so they were looked upon by the white people and white establishment as second class or third class people. Now, when you are interested in how they remember the time of subjugation, we, we, we recognize that in oral history as an oral history purpose of development. You tell the story, and the fact that you have been given the opportunity to tell makes you feel good about yourself. Finally, someone is listening to you and you, you, uh, you feel affirmed. Does the position of the interviewer then matter quite a bit in drawing that distinction between oral history and memory work? Is, is, is memory work, uh, does it entail a, a facilitator? versus kind of the professional historian doing the, the interviewing? Yes, uh, remember that uh, our organization is uh, Sinomlando uh, Center for Oral History and Memory Work in Africa. <coughs> we, are, we have got two wings within Sinomlando. Mm -hmm. One is oral history, where we have got interview, interviewers, and those are interested in the past. They are mainly interested in the past, what happened in the past. On the, and uh, we are purposely interviewing those uh, social actors who are neglected in the mainstream of, of history for uh, closing the gaps that are left out by written sources, but also for developmental purpose that people should uh, tell their stories. On the other hand, we have got what we call memory facilitators. And this is the area where we special where we we emphasize the memory boxes, because the telling, which is facilitating, the the memory facilitator tries to help the client 
uh, to remember for uh, either remember for the children to use the memories uh, well or to remember like in a counseling setting this is, but it's not a counseling setting uh, for a person to feel to feel good excellent um, so many more issues that we could talk about. Uh, you mentioned uh, the centrality of women, uh, for instance, um, as well as the positionality of the person involved in the uh, interviewing or facilitating of the conversation. Um, is there something that you would like to add that we haven't covered? Because I, I feel like we're just getting started, but uh, we only have time for uh, a couple more thoughts. Yeah, we had during this past weekend uh, we were shaping a research proposal or funding proposal and uh, I recognized the fact that those people who have suffered a lot from HIV and AIDS are women <coughs> uh, they have suffered because in South Africa the uh, system is patriarchal uh, men can have multiple partners. Uh, men have, for a long time, had monopoly on uh, employment, so they have more money than than, than women. And uh, the Lobola system gives them uh, power or authority to be the head of the family. So they don't worry much. They don't go for testing. That's what we have discovered. They, uh, when they have paid lobola, they oppress the women. So who are the people looking after the children? Who are the people who are uh, vulnerable in uh, uh, gender injustices? Who are the people who are biologically vulnerable in uh, uh, contracting HIV, uh, uh, the, the virus? This will be women. Despite the fact that they have suffered so much, they are the ones who avail themselves again to look after the orphans, orphaned and vulnerable children. Now the question I asked at that meeting was, why is there no proper recognition in giving more respect and more honor for the women? Because they are the ones who are in the front, in the, on the front lines. Yes. They are the ones who are fighting uh, this HIV and AIDS more than anyone else on the ground. These are the ground soldiers moving forward all the time, finding you know, innovative ways on how to deal with the disease. So, they are, and I think if there is any <coughs> award that should be given, it should be given to women. Uh, more recognition in the men and women relationship. The women are there. They should be given that uh, recognition. Well, that's a great note to, to end on, Radigobo. For those listeners who are interested in learning more about Sinomlando's uh, memory work and oral history, uh, you can go to, on the web to sinomlando.ukzn.ac.za or just Google Sinomlando, which is uh, Isizulu for We Have a History, S-I-N-O-M-L-A-N-D-O. Uh, we've been speaking with the Deputy Director of Sinomlando, Rodrigo Bonsimane. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Peter. It was a pleasure.
Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Alicia Scheel and the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other podcatcher sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.